great to be with you this morning. My name is Matt, for those of you who I haven't met, and I'm one of the leaders here. We are continuing in a series that we've been in called Apostolic Foundations, and the heart behind this series is that we're taking time to explore and ask the question, uh, who is God? What is God like? Uh, how should we think about uh, His grace toward us? Who are we as a result of what's happened? through the cross and resurrection and moving from being in Adam to being in Christ, adopted into the family of God. And then as a result of those things, as a result of who God is and then who we are, what our identity is, uh, we build on top of that and figure out, okay, well then what do we do? What are we to do in the world uh, based on who we are and the story that we're living? The month of October within that series is devoted to two things to exploring uh, the nature of our global family that we're a part of and the global mission that we are called to as followers of Jesus. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 28, verse 18, and we will pick up there in a couple minutes. As you're turning there, I want to share a little bit of background and context for what we're about to read. If you go all the way back to the beginning, God is creating the heavens and the earth. Eventually, He creates Adam and Eve. And if you know the biblical storyline, Adam and Eve reject uh, the rulership of God and decide to go and do their own thing. They plunge the world into a state of sin and darkness and chaos and death. And uh, humanity actually labors in that place for a while until God uh, begins officially begins His redemption plan. And it's launched in a specific moment in a very unlikely place. You would think that God would do something sort of cosmic-wide, uh, another flood, so to speak. But instead, He begins in a very curious place. He calls a man named Abram, later to be renamed Abraham, and he begins building a new and eternal family through this man and his descendants. And he says to this man, who's currently childless, he says, your descendants, your family will ultimately be one day too big to count. They will be so numerous, they will be like the stars in the sky or the sand when you're walking on the beach. You just won't even have a category. You won't be able to really grasp how big your family is going to be. It's going to be a global family uh, filled with billions of people. And of course, that was very difficult for Abraham to understand. But even in that initial moment of calling, he says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to build a family, a people through you. And through that family is going to have a calling on it. It's not just going to be a family that just kind of looks inwardly and does its own thing. There's, there's going to be a great call on this family of Abraham to go and to reach and to bless the nations and people groups of the world. These are the words that God first spoke to Abraham. He said, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. But as scripture unfolds, we actually get to understand more of this calling. We see that Christ and His kingdom, that the gospel of Jesus is the very blessing which Abraham's descendants are to carry into the world. This is how all the people and ethnic groups and families and tribes and tongues and nations will all be blessed through Jesus and the inbreaking kingdom of God. And curiously, as that kingdom spreads across the earth and people say yes to Jesus and step into Christ, they are actually adopted into the family of Abraham. We say that they become children of Abraham by adoption. Now they're part of that same global family 
that has that same global mission or calling upon it to take this gospel and inbreaking kingdom to the next family, to the next neighborhood, to the next city, to the next nation as that kingdom spreads across the world. That pattern keeps going and going through the millennia. Uh, If you have your Bibles open to Matthew 28, verse 18, we're going to read these words, but I wanted you to have that as a backdrop because it's building on everything else that's come before it in Scripture. These are Jesus' parting words to His disciples, which means they're very important words. He's commissioning them for what they're to do in the world. In fact, uh, if you've been around church maybe for years or decades, you might know we call this passage the Great Commission. Uh, It's not just a commission, it's the great one. It's the big picture thing that he's calling the disciples to as Jesus takes this global uh, mission and calling that's rested on the family of Abraham and places it into the laps of his followers, of the disciples who are coming after him uh, before he ascends and, and sends the Spirit to fill them. This is what he says. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore." Go. There's that word again. Same thing he said to Abraham. Go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups, all tribes, all families, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Before we go any further, I'll ask you to join me in prayer. Jesus, we turn our eyes towards you now, Lord. Your disciples in some far-flung corner of the world, thousands and thousands of miles from Jerusalem, uh, but your disciples in the 21st century, I, I pray, Lord, that as we explore what are somewhat simple concepts, I pray that they would drop into our hearts, Lord, that we would have the sense that you are here among us doing what you did for those first disciples, taking something that maybe felt uh, heady or far off, and just gently placing it into our laps so that we just feel it sink in and think, oh, yes, okay, I I get it. I feel it. I sense it. This is what you're calling me to do. So would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you work among us now? In Jesus' name, amen. If you are an adopted child of God, then you've been adopted into the family of Abraham. This family that we've been reading about that has a mission or a calling upon it to go and bless every family, every ethnic group, every nation on the earth. In the words of Jesus, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, you are to go. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then that is your identity. That's part of who you are. You can wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I am a disciple of Jesus. I may not always feel like the best disciple, but I am a disciple of Jesus. That's part of who I am. But that identity is also loaded with calling. That to his disciples, he says, he go and and make disciples of all nations to the very ends of the earth, inviting them into this inbreaking kingdom. So there's this great calling that is on you and on me that rests on us as the family of God as a result of our identity, as a result of who we are and the family that we're a part of. Hey, this is who we are. This is what our family does. So the plan for this morning is a simple one. I want to take sort of a 30,000 foot view of humanity and ask, how is our global mission going? And what does our global family look like? Or said another way, what is the state of our global family? What is the state of our global mission? What do those things look like as we sit here this morning? So first, our global mission. This calling that rests on the family of Abraham uh, to go and and bless all the nations of the world with the kingdom of God. This calling that rests on every disciple to go and make disciples. 
Uh, where are we at? How is that going? Well, I would actually say that in many ways, it's going very well. And I want to share some of those encouraging pieces with you this morning. But in the same breath, while we can say it's going very well, um, almost better than I would have thought it would go, uh, in the same breath, we're, we can say we have a long way to go. And there are many, many unreached people and unreached people groups in the world. Here are a few of the statistics. 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus, we still have over 7,000 unreached people groups. Each one of those people groups uh, can have anywhere from, it can be as small as 15,000, a remote tribe in the Amazon, or it can be as large as 7 or 8 million per people group that are unreached. And what it means to be unreached is that you have no gospel exposure, no gospel presence, uh, no nobody who can tell you, who have never heard the name of Jesus or heard about the cross and resurrection. So those 7,000 unreached people groups with essentially zero exposure make up 40% of the world's population or 3.4 billion people on earth with zero exposure. From there, there's, um, there's partial exposure, there's shallow exposure, and then the, the, most, um, the most you can, the highest ranking you can have as a people group is significantly reached which is high exposure. The gospel has made its way, has percolated its way through that culture. But on the other end of the spectrum, those who are significantly reached, those people groups make up less than 20% of the world's population. And many of those people groups are in America and Australia, where the two sort of highest ranked in, in terms of exposure to the gospel. So over, just over 80% of the world's population is in some sense unreached or underreached. I think we have a map actually uh, that sort of shows you where those people groups are. And it's a little hard to read from where you're sitting, but the green dots are significantly reached and partially reached. By the time you get to yellow, it's superficially reached. And then uh, orange and red are unreached or, um, what does it say? Marginally reached, something like that. So red is the worst that you can get, uh, probably jumping off the map and in your face is uh, South Asia, the south portion of Asia, and in particular the nation of India. There are thousands and thousands of unreached people groups in those places. It is the most unreached place or the least reached place for the gospel in the world. Uh, and those red dots, a single red dot can represent uh, up to millions of people that have never heard the gospel or been exposed. So when we think about where are the places where we really want to see the gospel and the kingdom of God break out, Asia and South Asia in particular is number one on the list. Uh, Africa, uh, in particular sub-Saharan Africa, is number two. And Europe is actually number three in terms of least reached places uh, in the world. When you look at those red dots and unreached, the, the unreached people groups of the world, 70% of them are what we would call the global poor. And in order to fall into that category, you have to be living off of a dollar or less a day. So when we think about the decades that lie ahead and how are we going to reach unreached people groups, there's two things I want you to keep in mind. One is that we have to love and minister to the poor, those living in poverty, and empower people living in poverty to then go turn around and plant churches and reach more and more of those unreached people. And the second thing I want you to think about as you look at this world map is that it's not up to you. That you were never meant to sort of go out as an individual and just throw yourself into an unreached people group and hope for the best. This was always meant to be something that we do together as the global family of God in order to go out and see the gospel advance into the nations. So the first thing I want you to note this morning is that you are needed in the global mission of God. That you have a role to play in, in this world that you see before you. For some of you, that actually means going for short periods of time or long periods of time 
overseas to some of these countries or some of these unreached people groups. For many of us, it will mean giving uh, in order to see the gospel advance. And it's actually really fun to give when you're living in America because our dollars go so far overseas in some of these places. Imagine being in a place where you live off a dollar a day and someone says, oh yeah, I'll, I'll fund that church plant for $20 a month or something. Like what that means for some of those people. So we have a tremendous opportunity to give into gospel advance and we'll have an opportunity to do that later this morning. And we all have an opportunity to pray. To pray for the advance of the kingdom of God. To carry some of these people groups and some of these nations in our hearts and pray for His kingdom to come. When I was a brand new Christian, I grew up as an atheist, but when I went off to college, where a ton of people are actually throwing their faith off and giving up their faith, that was actually the place I found Jesus, was as a freshman in college. And in those early years of following after Jesus, I, I don't know why, but I always had, when, it's like whenever I went to pray, whenever I closed my eyes, whenever I thought about praying, oh, Christians are supposed to pray, I'll kneel by my bed, I'm a new Christian now, what should I pray for? Always India and China were like right there on the forefront of my mind. Every time I closed my eyes, every time I went to pray for years, it was just, oh yeah, India, China, let's pray for them. A billion people each with such a minimal gospel exposure uh, in those nations. And it's been amazing to see what has happened in some of those places over the last couple of years and decades. In China alone, we have seen the greatest advance of the gospel that has ever been seen at any time since the resurrection of Jesus. Never have we seen so many people come to Jesus in so short a time span as it's rippled out across the underground church there. Uh, globally, in fact, we have never seen a time uh, from, the, from the time Jesus was resurrected until now, we have never seen the gospel go so far or so fast as it's going right now. There have never been more followers of Jesus alive on the earth than there are today. And that's by raw numbers and by percentage of population. We have never seen the kingdom of God expand the way that it's expanding. Uh, in the Muslim world, over the course of the last few decades, we have seen more Muslims come to faith in Christ in the last few decades than in the entire history of Islam combined. God is doing remarkable things in some of these places. But in the same breath, we would say there's more. There's millions, in fact, billions of people who have never heard the name of Jesus or had any meaningful exposure to the gospel. And you are needed in the global family of God, on the global mission of God, to go and bless every family and ethnic group uh, in, in the world with the gospel of the kingdom to go and make disciples of all nations. So we'd start by saying you are needed in the global mission of God and, and for some of you that means going overseas or supporting people who do. And I would also say you're needed here. In these decades that I've just described, as we have seen the gospel explode across different parts of the world and unreached people groups, in our country and across the Western world, we have actually seen a decrease in discipleship and a decrease in the number of churches. Last time I checked, nearly 70% of Americans still checked the survey box that identified as Christian, but in follow-up surveys, only a tiny percentage of those qualified as what we would call resilient disciples. And resilient disciples sounds really cool. It's not that cool. Uh, it means like you have a basic Christian worldview. You believe basic things that every Christian should believe about Jesus, about God, about Scripture, about yourself. It's like almost kind of this bare minimum of like, this is what every Christian throughout history has believed. Do you believe that? A tiny percentage of Americans actually qualified for that. 
for holding a biblical worldview. Uh, and so when you, you see that 70%, you say, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Uh, and in some ways it is because there's been some form of gospel saturation in our culture. But if you dig a little deeper, you'll find that most of our Christianity is actually shallow. It's a shallow version of the real thing. Many people in America have this vague notion of, oh yeah, I believe there's a God in heaven and uh, I believe that God should bless me in the things that I want. And it doesn't go a lot deeper than that. It's called moral therapeutic deism. And that's actually what most Americans fall into. So when you dig a little deeper, you'll realize, oh, actually most of that 70% doesn't know who Jesus is. Uh, bless you. Couldn't tell you what the gospel is and does not know how to follow Jesus in real time. So we have a, a tremendous opportunity before us in this generation and in the next generation. And in fact, the younger the generation is, the more depressing the statistics. Among millennials like myself, only 6% of millennials in church qualified as resilient disciples. In church, 94% did not make, did not, aren't. When you widen that out and go into the broader culture, only 2% of millennials qualify as resilient disciples. And when you go to the next younger generation, Gen Z, which if you're Gen Z, that's somewhere around like 28 and younger, that's 25% of our entire population in America right now is Gen Z. And they were slightly lower than millennials. 1% or less of Gen Z qualifies as resilient disciples. Thousands of churches closing every year. So whether you're thinking about overseas and unreached people groups or you're thinking about the situation here at home, we have a tremendous opportunity before us in your lifetime for discipleship. There's a tremendous need right here where you're sitting in our city as well as in distant nations. And so you're needed in both of those places. You're needed locally and you're, you're needed to advance the gospel in the nations. So that's a brief snapshot of, where, of the mission of God. Where are we at with the global mission of God, both here and abroad? But it'll come as no surprise, based on everything that I've just mentioned, that now as we turn our attention to the family of God, what is the state of the global family of God as we sit here this morning? It should come as no surprise that it's been shifting and changing over the course of the last century. And in fact, it has been shifting and changing since the resurrection, but it's shifting and changing again. If you go all the way back to the beginning, to the start of the Jesus movement, uh, it started where? Where did it all start? <laughs> Sometimes we think that. Where did the Jesus movement start? The, who were the first disciples? It's not a trick question. Where did they live? Jerusalem. It started in Israel. It started in Jerusalem. You think I'm trying to trick you. I'm, I'm not. It started at the site of the cross and the resurrection. It started when the Holy Spirit fell on those gathered in Jerusalem and the church was born in a day. The church of Jesus was born. So you can go back and stand in the very place where that movement started, where the first disciples lived. It started in Jerusalem. But, but notice that it started in the middle of Israel, in Jerusalem, where Jewish leaders were proclaiming the good news of their Jewish Messiah through the lens of the Jewish scriptures to the Jewish people. This is where everything started. And they had no plans of going beyond that. It could have stayed that way, except that God went in a miraculous way and began working in the lives of Peter and Paul and others and lifting their eyes and saying, I want you to not just look inward, I want you to look outward at this vast world of pagans and Gentiles. I want you to share the news of the Jewish Messiah with them. 
So he said, Peter, you can read about this if you go back to starting in Acts 10 through Acts 15 and even beyond that. There's this, there's this moment that's marked in Scripture in the narrative where he says, Peter, I want you to go to the Gentiles. Go. Same thing he said to Abraham. Same thing Jesus said to the side. I want you to go and go to the Gentiles. And he said, what? Those people? The, the pig eaters? No, we don't, we're not going to them. He's, no, I want you to go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and bless every family and ethnic group on the world. Even them? Yes, even them. So Peter goes very reluctantly, and he does the same thing with Paul. Paul, go to the Gentiles. What? Those idolaters? Those demon worshipers? Those people practicing temple prostitution? I'm not, what are you talking about? I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. Every family, every ethnic group, go. And, and so God really has to do something to get them moving beyond the Jewish context. But as they do, they begin going into the pagan world and planting seeds. And there were places where those seeds began to uh, take root and to grow. One of those places was Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. And uh, Antioch, was known as sort of the, the underbelly of the pagan world. And Antioch was known as being, uh, they literally called it the sewer of the Roman Empire because it was so morally decrepit. It was like the darkest of the dark of the pagan world. But, but people started going there. Some of the first Christians started going there and witnessing and sharing. And slowly at first, people started coming to Jesus. And then more people began being rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and into the light. And then more and more. And it really began to grip the city. And all of a sudden, Antioch rose to become the new center of Christianity. And this is remarkable. This is a remarkable moment in church history that Antioch actually grew to eclipse Jerusalem because it could have stayed as, as a mostly Jewish, Jerusalem-based thing, but it didn't. It broke out. It jumped borders in context. This completely unreached people group ends up becoming the new center of Christianity. And, and that mar even just that moment marks Christianity as different and distinguishable from every other major world religion. If you look at any other religion, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, they all have a birthplace that was the center and remains the center and will always be the center geographically. Not so with Christianity. It it's like a wildfire that jumped over the boundary and broke out in a new place. All of a sudden, Antioch was the new center of Christianity. And from Antioch, they sent people out to the ends of the earth, to Persia to Armenia, to Georgia, to India, down into Africa, into Ethiopia, as far east as China. They were sending people from Antioch. Uh, Syriac, their local language that was there, became one of the international languages of the early church because everything was birthed out of Antioch and flowing out of it. Just remarkable that it became the new center. But what's even more remarkable is that it didn't stay the center. The center, as the gospel continued to ripple out across the world, the center shifted again to Ephesus, to Constantinople, to Rome, to Western Europe, to America. Over the years and the centuries, the center of Christianity has continued to shift. In fact, this uh, map is a little hard to discern, but it's mapping based on all the followers of Jesus in the world, where's the center point? Where's the center weighted of gravity between all the people who are following Jesus? You can see it starts in Jerusalem, but then it heads upward toward Antioch in the, in the first century. But then it just keeps shifting and shifting and shifting around the world. It's been shifting for the last 2,000 years. And just in the last uh, couple decades, you can see that it's shifted again in a major way. 
So as we sit here this morning, the majority of disciples are not in Western Europe or in America. The majority of disciples are now in the global south, in places like Africa and Latin America and Asia. In fact, this is a, a brief breakdown of where the highest concentration of Christians are in the world. The uh, number one place is South and Central America, 500 million people checking the box of Christian in those places. Just like America, there's still a deeper work to be done. But based on that statistic of 500 million, uh, Spanish has actually been the majority language of Christianity since the 1980s. The majority language. Uh, second behind South and Central America is Africa with 400 million uh, Christians and counting. And in fact, based on the growth rates, it's actually projected that in the next couple of decades, Africa is going to overtake Latin America and be the statistical center of Christianity in the world. China alone is estimated to have 90 million Christians in the underground church in China, which is amazing. By the year 2050, which is just around the bend, only two out of every 10 Christians globally will be of European descent. Or in America, we, have, we use the term white. I don't think the rest of the world does, says that. But people of European descent will only make up two out of 10 of the Christians on earth. Why? Because, because the center is shifting. It's always been shifting, but it's shifting again. Our global family looks different now than it did when I was born a couple decades ago. And it's going to continue to look different in the decades ahead. We have this narrative, I think, in the Western world that Christianity sort of had a brief moment in Jerusalem, but then really jumped to Western Europe. And, uh, you know, church history really started with Martin Luther and the Reformation and things that were happening in Western Europe. And then from there, it came to America. And so the narrative that we tell or the picture we often carry in our minds is that Western Europe and America are kind of the start and the center of Christianity as we know it. And that from Western Europe and America, we've sent out missionaries to the unreached people groups of the world. But if we don't send out missionaries, then nobody will go. There will be no missionaries and no one will know the gospel. Uh, and uh, reality is that, there, that America and Western Europe were perhaps the eighth center of Christianity. And there's already been a ninth and there's about to be a tenth. Because of the nature of the way the kingdom of God breaks out around the world. Which means that we are part of the story, but we're not the whole story. We're part of the kingdom of God, but we're not the center of the kingdom of God. When you look at the nature of our global family, uh, I don't think it will be very long before Africa starts sending missionaries to us. To a Western world that has slipped into atheism and agnosticism and apathy. They'll be coming to us to remind us of what we've forgotten. Even now, across Europe, thousands of the uh, European churches are closing and have been closing over the last century. But if you go into the urban core of many European cities, the, most, the biggest and most vibrant churches you'll find there are African churches. Fastest growing, most vibrant, full of faith, planting new churches in the middle of Europe. But all of this, I believe, follows a pattern that's been playing out ever since the resurrection. It happens over and over again where uh, missionaries and apostolic leaders 
go into new places and break new ground and they go to unreached people groups and they plant seeds for the gospel. And historically, in places where those seeds have found fertile soil and taken root and grown, they've eventually broken up through the surface of those cultures and become visible. All of a sudden, the kingdom of God begins to bloom and blossom and become visible and new life begins breaking out in the midst of of spiritual death. All of a sudden, there's new life in Christ that's breaking out and that culture or unreached people group experiences a spring. New life springs up that wasn't there before. And in many cases, it grows and grows bigger and bigger and bigger and it spreads more and more and gains more and more momentum until that culture experiences uh, or Christianity within that culture experiences a summer. Full-blown summer where it's out, it's visible, it's the majority of people who are following after Jesus or identifying as Christian. There's lots of cultural favor. They sort of have their day in the sun. But then, after enough decades or even several centuries, usually what happens is that fall comes. That excitement begins to wane. That people slowly begin to trickle away and stop following Jesus. And then it gets deeper and deeper into fall and the culture sort of rejects or sets aside Christianity and it goes into winter. The disciples who are left go underground, so to speak. The culture itself becomes cold toward the things of God. And then what we often see, and this is the great hope of the Western world, is that you'll see another spring. That into that culture that has grown cold, there will be what we often call revival. That new life will break out again. In some ways, it's a hard moment to be a disciple in the Western world because if you chart the trajectory over the last 50 years, you will see that by the numbers, we are uh, in fall. We're experiencing fall in the Western world headed toward winter. And yet even now, Both here and abroad, there are people praying for the next spring, praying for revival in the Western world. And I believe it's going to happen. Though, of course, I couldn't tell you when. So, to sum everything up, you are needed in the global mission of God, both here and in the nations. You are part of the family of Abraham adopted in with this call that rests on our global family. You are a disciple of Jesus, and with that comes this calling to go and make disciples in neighborhoods and in nations. So you are needed and you are called, but you are not the center. We are not the center. In fact, when you look at the global family of God, We are kind of an odd little minority on the edge of the kingdom. Disciples in the Western world, you and I are weird. If aliens were to come to earth to study Christianity, they likely wouldn't come to America despite the level of gospel saturation that we've had here, they would likely, as a typical middle-of-the-road case study, go to a rural peasant farmer in China or to a single mother in West Africa or to a 22-year-old Peruvian man because that's the statistical center of Christianity. Some of you know that my wife uh, is Central American, born in Honduras, native Spanish speaker. She had to learn English when she came here. She is actually a more typical follower of Jesus than I am. I'm the weird one. She's got the majority language. She's got the majority people within our global family. We're the odd ones. And unless revival comes through the the Western world, 
in the next few decades, we will be increasingly odd. We're not the center today. We will be less the center tomorrow unless revival comes. All that to say, you and I are part of this mission. We're part of this family. We're called. I would say we have a unique contribution to make to our global family based on who we are and what God's doing in America. We are meant to participate. We are meant to go to the nations. But you have to do that. We have to do that with a sense of humility. We have to see our brothers and sisters around the world and engage with our brothers and sisters around the world knowing that we are not the center. Knowing that we are not superior to any other ethnic group or any other people that God's calling us to bring the gospel to. We don't have some exclusive claim on truth. We, we are not the center of Christianity. In fact, our, as a people group, we are no more Christian than other people groups. One to two percent resilient disciples. By my sort of napkin estimate, there are four or five times as many resilient disciples in China as there are in America. So we are not the center of the kingdom, but we are part of the kingdom of God. And God wants us in the game. We often picture, I've often pictured in my mind, America as the center with arrows going out from there of people and resources and prayer and these different things. And certainly we have a unique role to play. If you are an American citizen, if you have an American passport, if you have American dollars and American influence, you can leverage all of those things for the sake of the kingdom of God. In fact, you'll notice in Scripture that Paul is a Roman citizen, which is really sought after in those days, and he leveraged it for the sake of the kingdom of God. I wasn't shy about that. Oh no, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use every advantage I've been born into for the sake of the kingdom of God. You have unique advantages in the global travel system, in the global economy, in every sense that most people in the world don't have. And you can use that, you can leverage that for the sake of the kingdom of God, uh, like Paul did. So we have something unique to bring. We cannot afford to fall asleep at the wheel. We cannot afford to slip into the sort of apathetic consumerism that is swallowing our country and numbing us and putting us to sleep. No, we we have to wake up. We have to press in to this global mission that God is calling us to while recognizing that we are not the center, that we we don't have an exclusive claim on Christianity or the truth, but God wants us to participate. And and what He wants is a global family in the true sense of the word, with people and resources and prayer, not going from one country out to all the others, but crisscrossing as all of us help each other and pray for each other and resource each other and speak into each other's blind spots. If you go and look at the book of Acts in the early church, it started in Jerusalem, so in the beginning there was only one direction for things to go. Peter, Paul, others, get out of Jerusalem, go out into the nations. In fact, there was persecution. Stephen was stoned. They scattered. God forced them out. Get out there. Go to the nations. Everything was flowing out of Jerusalem. But as the church took root across the ancient pagan world, it started going the other way as well. There were people and money and resources that were sent to Jerusalem to strengthen and encourage the churches in Jerusalem. There were poorer churches in the pagan world that begged for the opportunity to take a special offering to send to the churches in Jerusalem, which were typically the well-off ones, but they had hit a a time of famine. And they said, please may we take an offering up at our churches that we can send with Paul to you. People, money, resources, everything started moving in this uh, interconnected, interdependent web of relationships that we would call apostolic partnership. And I think that's God's heart for his church. In in fact, one of the roles of an apostolic leader is to take the local church and say, lift your eyes to the nations. Lift your eyes and see what God is doing globally and participate in that. To connect people across borders and cultures and contexts. That's what Paul did as an apostolic leader. 
That's what Steve Oliver does as, as a servant-hearted leader of regions beyond. He just says, lift your eyes, see one another, and become a web of, of people and resources going back and forth. I think that's what the church was supposed to be. It starts by going from Jerusalem to Antioch, but eventually it's going from Antioch to Jerusalem, back and forth across the world. Uh, as we fulfill this call as a global family called on a global mission. This morning as we close and we head to the communion tables, there's, uh, today is the start of our global offering. Uh, once a year in every regions beyond church uh, around the world, we do a global offering, which is a chance for every local church to give into what God is doing globally. And you'll have an opportunity to do that this morning and in the days ahead. But this is not just an opportunity for the rich countries to give money to the poor countries. It's actually not what it is. It's all of the countries in all of their contexts participating and partnering together for the advance of the gospel here and abroad to all of those unreached people groups. In fact, I think it was last year our churches in Burundi uh, did their global offering and they collected $110. But you're thinking, okay, that's $110. Keep in mind that Burundi is one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth. And these churches are, uh, are, were planted among the poor of Burundi. So these are people who are living off of a dollar a day or less. And they gave $110 in the global offering, which would be the uh, equivalent of us right now collecting, say, $20,000 right now this morning right for the global offering. And, but they were, they were so thrilled to do that. And some of those dollars went to getting uh, to, toward the Amplify conference that we did in the spring for the regions beyond churches in the United States. And they were thrilled. So this is what we want to do. We're partners together. We're going to help you in what God's calling you to do. And you're going to help us. And some of our dollars have ended up in Dubai. And some of Dubai's dollars have ended up in Burundi. And on and on it goes as this massive web of, of people that make up the church of Jesus. Uh, last week, we just in the last couple of weeks, there's been a new Regions Beyond Church planted in Malawi, which is in East Africa. It's another one of the poorest uh, nations in the world. And last week, you might remember, we showed a video from our persecuted churches in India. You see what they're up against based on that map. Amazing things happening in India that I don't have time to share about this morning. But persecution is broken out against them. We prayed last week. We took a, a special offering for India. They did the same thing in Malawi. And uh, they collected $52 in a country where you're making a dollar a day. And you go out and work that day to earn that dollar to eat that night. They don't have savings. They don't, I don't even know where that money came from. He hadn't even, the leader who just planted the church, hadn't even finished explaining what the offering was for. And they, in many countries, including theirs, they have a basket at the front. It's a very public thing. We get weird about that in America. I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't want them to do that. They have a big basket and people just file to the front and, and, and give. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. People were coming down the aisle and putting money in before you could even finish explaining what was happening in India. Beautiful. Like, we want to support that. We want to give into that. It's everybody praying for one another and supporting one another. And that's uh, an amazing picture of the global family of God praying for the global advance of the gospel. Uh, as the center of Christianity continues to shift and the outskirts become the center and the center becomes the outskirts and the gospel breaks out into new places and new people groups over and over again until Jesus comes back. And we see this happening. We see this, this global family acting like a global family. As we sit here this morning and I look at our regions beyond family, some of our best Church planters in England and Scotland are former Muslims from India who God grabbed a hold of, rescued out of darkness, brought into his family and said, go there. Plant there. They're gathering people. They're planting new churches and moving on and planting new churches. Amazing. But there's also people from England and Scotland 
who are serving the churches in South Africa. And there are native South Africans who are serving and encouraging the new church plan in Malawi. And there are people from Malawi who are serving the church in Dubai. And there are people from Dubai who are serving in just about every country in the world. And on and on it goes. As one expression of the global family of God called to go out and bless every tribe, tongue, and nation with the gospel and the inbreaking kingdom of God as we follow after Jesus together. You are a part of that story. I'm a part of that story. So I'm going to pray for our global offering. Um, you can give toward that if you want to in person. There's a little black box over here by that communion table that you can give into if you prefer to give in person. If you like to give online through the website or the app, uh, you can do that. Just choose the drop-down menu that says uh, Regions Beyond Global Missions. And we're going to leave all of these giving avenues open for the month of October as we continue to highlight what's happening around the world. That giving and that global offering we're taking today is one avenue of participation in the global family of God. That's one way you can express who you are and what you're called to be a part of. But ultimately, we're asking, Lord, how do you want me to participate in this global family and this global mission? Giving is just a, a sliver of that. Every single one of us here in Spokane and in the nations is called to walk out who we are, is called to participate in that global mission. There are untold thousands of ways to express this one great call that was given to Abraham, that was clarified and brought to fulfillment in Jesus, and that is now being lived out in real time in us, full of the Spirit following after Jesus. And Lord, how do you want me to participate? What do you want me to do with my one life with my time, with my resources, with my prayer, with my whatever it is that he's blessed you with. We're all asking that question as a global family on a global mission. Lord, what's my role in this family and this mission? What do you want me to do today? Let's pray.